Good morning. Good morning. Yes. I'm glad to see everybody did not go to the beach or the lake on July 4th. Welcome. I've got uh, two lovely assistants who are with me today who are going to read the scripture for us. And this is an awesome story. This is a continuation of what we've done the last couple of weeks. Today we're looking at Genesis 4. And we made the statement a couple of weeks ago to really understand your life. To understand how your life works, you have to understand the principles in Genesis 3 and 4. So I said, when Anu read the scripture for us a couple of weeks ago, after she finished, she went and sat down and I said, you know what, it's almost impossible for me to build an epic enough introduction to what Anu just read for us. So today is the same. Today is epic. We're going to be looking today at the story of Cain and Abel. And Heidi and Susanna are going to read that for us. And let's go old school. Out of reverence for God's word, let's stand together as they read Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, the sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are dragging me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thank you, girls. You may be seated. Diane and I had an opportunity to go uh, for a couple of days this week and visit my two sisters at a, a lake in North Carolina. And I realized while we were there that relationships are hard, aren't they? One of my sisters was telling me about a good friend of our families who they had a family crisis a couple of years ago, a pretty dramatic family crisis. And then within just a few months, their daughter got married. And, you know, while that was a wonderful, joyous occasion, on the heels of the family crisis, it was, it was kind of a lot. And then on top of that, the parents have had a difficult relationship with the son-in-law because 
you know, relationships are hard. And the parents recently, just a few months ago, decided they were going to celebrate a significant wedding anniversary. So they went on an elaborate, they went overseas on an elaborate vacation. And on their way on vacation, the daughter and the son-in-law said to them, listen, we don't want to hear from you. Don't call us. Don't text us. Put your cell phone and your iPad away. We don't want to know where you are. Don't worry about us. And they were crushed. And of course, they had several people say to them, you know, look, what they're saying is, make this all about you. This is your vacation. Make it about the two of you. But what they heard was, we don't really care about you. In fact, we care so little about you, you're going out of the country, and we don't want to know anything about it. We don't even want to hear from you. Relationships are just hard, and that's just communication. What's wrong with the human race? According to the Bible, the problem with the human race is sin. Actually, according to the Bible, the reason we have all these difficulties is because our hearts and our minds are a battlefield. Look, if you miss everything else, even boys and girls don't miss this. I'm going to talk to the boys and girls a couple of times this morning. But you can remember even this. Learn this lesson very early in life. You can't understand yourself unless you understand that sometimes your heart and your mind are a battlefield. And we will not understand how our lives work unless we understand that. So what's that got to do with Cain and Abel? Well, that's really, that's what the story of Cain and Abel is about. It's about the battle for our hearts and our minds, or actually in our hearts and our minds. From this story, we can learn three things about sin. I'm going to say a, a big picture word about sin in a minute. But we learn three things about sin, and we also get a hint at the hope that's ours. And I'm going to step outside of this passage at the very end and talk a little bit about hope. But we, we learn three things about sin. We learn the dangerous nearness of sin. We learn the consuming power of sin. And then we learn the terrible consequences of sin. We learn the dangerous nearness, the consuming power, and the terrible consequences of sin. And then we're going to get a look just at the hope. Okay, so the dangerous nearness of sin. Sin is right there with us. God told Cain in the middle of this passage, I don't know if you heard Heidi read it, but God told Cain, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. All right, boys and girls. I'll bet you sometimes it's hard for you to obey your parents. Now, I don't know if this ever happens in your household, but this would happen in our household. So you tell me if this ever happens in your household. Something like this. Jordan, it's time to go clean your room. Oh. 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 I don't know if anything like that happens in your household. But that happens sometimes in our household. Still. Jordan, it's time to go to bed. It happened three times over in our household. Do you know why it's so difficult to obey your parents, boys and girls? It's difficult to obey your parents because sin is right there with you. There's always a battle for your mind and your heart. I'm going to tell you in a little while why it's so important to obey your parents. But it's difficult to obey your parents because sin is crouching at the door. 
There's a guy in the New Testament, who the Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of the New Testament, and he said it in a kind of a profound way. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 7, he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and Paul says this, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I'm going to read that one more time. It's almost like he's talking about a couple of different eyes there, doesn't it? We'll, we'll explain that in a second. I don't understand what I do. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, that's the thing I do. Okay, last week we talked about how because of what happened with Adam and Eve, you and I ended up with a spiritual enemy. We acknowledge the fact that there is really around us a spiritual world that you and I have been cut off from. You know, I said a couple of weeks ago, I think that that spiritual world originally was a part of the framework and the fabric of reality. It was almost like Adam and Eve originally lived in five dimensions. You know, they talk about four dimensions, the three dimensions of space and the dimension of time. I think Adam and Eve lived with a fifth dimension, the dimension of spirit. And that dimension was cut off from us, separated from us. And in that dimension, we have an enemy, someone who works against us. And we said, you can't understand your life unless you understand that. Well, today we have an equally important principle because we also have something living within us. Sin crouching at the door. In fact, the same guy, the Apostle Paul, he called it our sin nature. I think it works kind of like this. We have an essential self. You know, the core of who we are, the most important part of who we are. The Bible will sometimes call that our soul or our spirit. And I think that essential self works with our will like a hand in a glove. And that essential self operating through the will must decide constantly if it will choose what Paul calls the sinful nature or what he will call the spirit, the desire to do good. Romans chapter 8 verses 5 through 8. He says this profound thing. Just a chapter later after he said how confused he is in Romans 7. He says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. In other words, our minds and our hearts are a battlefield, and we will never understand our own lives unless we understand and accept that. The story of Cain and Abel is a perfect example of the raging battle within us. Okay, so if you were following that story, you recognize that the context of that story is worship. They're actually performing an act of worship. So Cain here is trying to do the right thing. He's not some terrible guy. He's giving God an offering. He is in an act of worship. And certainly he believes in God. He's communicating with God. But... From the very beginning of this exchange, there are signs of trouble. Now, adults, this we're close to the point of, if you miss everything else, don't miss this. Follow what happens. In verse 3 of this account, the author tells us, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering. So he's entering into worship. It's an act of offering to God. And he brings some of the fruits of his soil. Because Cain was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. 
And Abel, it says, brought fat portions, which in the ancient Near East and in most cultures, except today when we're conscious of our weight, in most cultures, the fat portions were the most delectable. That's the part that gave it the taste. That was the most desirable part of the animal. Abel brought, it says, the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So God ends up being pleased with Abel, and he favors Abel, but not with Cain. He's not pleased with Cain. And then Cain demonstrates, already, Cain demonstrates here, before he does anything to his brother Abel, Cain demonstrates that he had a mercenary connection with the Lord. Cain had a connection with the Lord which basically asked, what can I get out of this? So how do we know that? How do we know that Cain had a mercenary connection with the Lord? Because when things didn't go Cain's way, he got really, really angry. When things didn't work, when the dream didn't work out, he got really, really angry. I don't know about you, but I suspect that some of you have had, at times, a kind of mercenary connection with God. I know that I have. I've had months, perhaps years in my life, when my prayer, whether I was fully aware of it or not, my prayer has been something like this. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, I've done, I've done everything right. I took my kids to church most weeks, and I've been trying to pray, and, and I've been trying to, I've been trying to, I've, I've been trying, you know, I, I even wake up in the morning, you know, I try to read the Bible, and the result is this. So I had the kind of connection with God where I felt like if, if I just checked all the boxes, then God was obligated to do what I wanted. God was obligated to satisfy my dream or my vision or my idea for how my life worked. But God is under no obligation to you and I. And I was getting the critical feature of my life that my life is a battlefield. My mind and my heart battle. And God is more interested infinitely that I would battle in the right direction, then he's interested in supplying my dreams and my desires. So Cain gets angry. And what he decides to do is Cain's anger, Cain's fury, turns into murder. And so Cain takes his brother out in the field and he kills him. And I think it would be important for us here to notice how far the human race has fallen. I read in a commentary this week just a paragraph from a guy who's talking about this incident, and he makes note of that. He makes note of how bizarre this is and how far the human race has fallen. Remember, we're in the second generation now. And he says this, many details emphasize the depths of Cain's crime. Number one, the context is worship. Number two, the victim is his own brother. Number three, while Eve had been talked into her sin, Cain will not even have God talk him out of it. Number four, nor will he confess. And number five, nor yet will he accept his punishment. Some of you in high school had to read novels by John Steinbeck. Some of you haven't gotten to high school yet. So those of you who will one day have to read John Steinbeck, parents plug your ears for a second. Let me introduce you to Spark Notes. Anyway, John Steinbeck was a Nobel Prize winning author, and he said that his most important and best book was a book called East of Eden. 
He took the story East of Eden. It's really, East of Eden is in fact John Steinbeck's commentary on the story of Cain and Abel. When uh, the last line of verse 16 that Susanna read for us, when Cain is banished and he's separated from God and from himself really, and from his livelihood. When he's separated, it says that he went east of Eden. And so Steinbeck took that as the title of his book. And the book East of Eden, the book traces the lives of two families from the Civil War really through the end of World War I. The central family in the story, not surprisingly, has two sons. And one of the sons ends up abusing the other son, and he, the, the abused son signs up for World War I and goes, goes off and dies in the war. At one point, Steinbeck, sorry to give the, I know you all wanted to read that, so I'm sorry to give part of the story away, but there's a lot more. So at one point in the book, Steinbeck has the narrator of the book say this, humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, and in their kindness and generosity too. Humans are caught in a net of good and evil. All of us, we only have one story. And by that Steinbeck means the story of the human race is the story of the battle. The choice that our essential self makes every day, the, the 50, 60, 70, 80 choices that our essential self makes as it battles over one direction or another in our minds and our hearts. Uh, you know, we Northern Virginians are a pretty optimistic group overall. I mean, some of us certainly struggle with anxiety or with depression, but overall, we're a pretty optimistic group. Let me explain what I mean. We're highly educated. We're fairly accomplished. We've done a lot of things very well over the course of our lives. That's how we ended up with the American dream. And one of the nicest suburban areas of one of the nicest cities in the world. And we think, underneath, we think things can always get better. We think if we have the right plan, or if we put in the right effort, or if we get the right formula, we can make things work and get better. We can even learn from our mistakes and do things better the next time. And there is, of course, a lot of wisdom in that. There's a lot of godly wisdom in that. But I think it's surprising to learn that the Bible does not share our unbridled optimism. We're caught in the middle of a battle, a battle that we are bound and guaranteed to lose. I'm going to say that again. We're caught in a battle that we're guaranteed to lose. Now I'm going to give us some hope before we end today, but before we look at the hope, we need to understand the difficulty of the situation that we're in so we can understand our lives. As I said, we never really get ourselves unless we understand this. Sin is dangerously near. It's right beside you, constantly available. The Apostle Paul draws it even closer. He says it's within you. You have within you a sin nature, a nature that tends toward evil emotional tendencies, a nature that tends for some of you toward rage, a nature that tends for some of you toward depression and worry and assuming that life is yours and all belongs to you, a nature that tends toward control. And for some of us, a nature that has driven us to secret sins, 
and habits of relating to one another that frankly just make relationships very hard. Not only is sin dangerously near, sin has consuming power. This is the second thing we learn from what God told Cain. God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Its urge is for you. Some translators translate it. I like what Tim Keller says about this. Check this. Tim Keller said, first you do sin, then sin does you. You know, you don't do sin and then it's over. Sin is like a force in our lives. It wants to consume. It has its way. And ultimately, it will have its way with you. If we go back to Romans 7, that same passage where Paul says, I don't even understand what I do. He says this a few verses later in verses 18 through 20. Paul says, look, I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't even carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I don't want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me who does it. Sin takes on a life of its own. It wants to master you and I. It wants to rule over us. So we cannot allow ourselves the line of thinking, oh, just one more time, because it's never one more time. We can't allow ourselves to think, well... I mean, I, I think everybody, I mean, no, no, Nate's doing it, probably Jeff. We can't allow that line of thinking because sin wants to master us. First you do sin, then sin does you. If you don't believe that sin wants to master you, then think about the times when you've tried to resist your secret sin. You last for a couple of days, and then you think, wow, I mean, just one more time. Or think about your emotional tendencies. For some of you, the times when you have raged, for those of you who are parents, the times when you have raged against your children or against your husband or wife if you're married or if you're single against a roommate or against your parents. And you walked away and felt terrible. I'll never do that again, you told yourself. I feel so badly now, I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember how badly I feel. How do I know what you were thinking at that point and how can I describe it to you? Because I've been there too. This is the human condition. We have a battlefield within us. Think about what happened when you tried to act against your natural emotional tendencies to shut off that rage. And then something happens, and the rage begins to bubble up, and you travel down that well-worn path yet again. Okay, little parentheses this morning. I know the language of sin is unfashionable today, but I want to suggest that no other language adequately describes the battle within us. Nothing else works. No other language captures our experience when we allow our wills to move in the wrong direction. The angst and the drama and the difficulty that we feel over our own urges and the shame and guilt that we feel as a consequence of making wrong choices can't be explained with any other concept. Social scientists will use the language of dysfunction. And educators will use the language of peer pressure or lack of opportunity or lack of exposure. And therapists will use the language of maladaptive behavior. And all of those concepts, 
all of those constructs are very helpful and very beneficial. You and I can learn a lot from all of those, but ultimately they will not describe our real condition, nor will they prescribe a way out. They're all helpful, but they do not do our experience justice, and they can't bring us ultimate satisfaction. We are not victims of whatever. Certainly things happen to us that are not our fault. Terrible things happen to us that are not our fault. But all of the most important things that happen outside of and within you and I are the things that we choose and the response that we make to the things that happen to us. You and I are not victims. I can't tell you how many times over the years I have said myself, or I've, I've sat in my den with Diane or in my office and heard someone say to me, you know, so-and-so just ruined my life. The way they did, that's never the most important thing that happened. The most important thing that happened is what you and I did in response to what someone may have done to us. And only the language of sin covers this. We made choices. We aren't victims. We made choices based on our own nature. We sinned. We violated our own conscience and we violated God's law. We own our we own our sin, and then our sin owns us. It wants to master us. Okay, so back to boys and girls. Boys and girls, if you're still with me, one more thing. Do you know why God wants you to obey your parents? This morning when you stand up and you start to run around and your mom or dad says, you know, Heidi, stop running around, otherwise you're going to come up here and explode uh, Mr. Adcock's guitar. Well, we don't want Heidi to explode Mr. Adcock's guitar. That would be terrible. Then Mr. Adcock's sin nature might take over. <laughs> but that's not why Heidi needs to obey her parents. It's not about Mr. Adcock's guitar. Boys and girls, listen to this. Parents, too. Heidi needs to learn to obey her parents because Heidi needs to obey something higher than herself. Ultimately, Heidi needs to obey God, and Heidi will never know how to obey God unless she learns how to obey her parents because you and I don't get to be in control. You and I don't get to master anything. We have two choices. Either, on the one hand, we serve our sin nature and ultimately our spiritual enemy, Satan, or we serve God. We don't get to be in control. There's no middle ground. We choose one way or the other. And boys and girls, you learn to obey your parents. You learn to turn your life over to your parents so that one day you can turn your life over to God. Because short of that, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for it. It wants to rule you. And it will. Okay. So we either serve sin and ultimately Satan or we serve God. Sin is consumingly powerful. It wants to master you. It wants to rule you. No other option is available to us. All right. Third thing we learn about sin are the terrible consequences. We learn about the consequences of sin from what happens with Cain. So Cain takes his brother out into the field, his brother out into the field. 
and he kills him. And then, of course, God comes in the same way that he came to Adam and Eve. God insists that Cain own his sin. God knows what happened to Abel, but he wants Cain to answer. So God comes to Cain and says, what's up, Cain? Cain says, hey, God, how's it going? It's not going so good. Where's your brother Abel? What am I? Am I like, am I, is it my job to keep tabs on my brother Abel? Already. We're one generation into the human race and we're already learning to be defensive and sarcastic. And so God says, look, your brother Abel is dead. And his blood, check this, his blood cries out to me. Literally in the Hebrew it says, the voice of his blood cries out to me. What does that mean? What God is saying there is, my justice will be served. You've done something that violates the moral law of the universe. I made that moral law. It's consistent with my character. And I built into the universe that there is an inevitable consequence when you violate it. Hey, Cain, go over to that cliff over there, jump off. No, God, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I'll fall to the ground. Well, how do you know you'll fall to the ground? Well, it always happens, and one day somebody's going to discover gravity. Haven't found it yet, so go ahead and do it, Cain. No, because, you know, gravity. See, gravity's a law. Everywhere you go in the universe, there's gravity. Everywhere you go in the universe, there is a moral law built into the framework of the universe, and you violate that moral law, there are consequences. So God releases the consequences on Cain. There's no other way to say it. And Cain ends up separated, separated from God. Cain says, I can't do this, God. I'll be separated from your presence. You should have thought about that before you let sin master you. Separated from God, separated from the land, from his livelihood, separated from his own life, separated from himself, separated from his family. He travels east of Eden. The consequence is that God's justice kicks in and Cain is separated. And God's justice is served. It always is. It always will be. But I want you to know, in this story, let's end with this. In this story, there's a hint also of God's mercy. Because God is completely just with Cain. God says, look, this is the result of sin. Cain, look, sin is dangerously close to you. Cain, sin is consumingly powerful. It, it wants to master you, and, and Cain does it anyway. So here are the consequences. Cain, you are separated from me, separated from your livelihood, separated from your family, separated from yourself. But I'm going to protect you. I don't want anything worse to happen to you, so I'm going to put a mark on you so that no one from here on out, no one will bother you. Cain, I'm not going to let anyone do to you what you did to your brother. I'm going to provide some measure of protection at this point. And in that moment... What we see is a little hint at God's mercy. So let me step out of this passage for just a second and talk about God's mercy before we go home so we don't have to feel so bleak about our lives. Look, all Cain knows at this point, and if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll remember this. All Cain knows at this point from his mother, Eve, he knows what God told Satan. So what God told Satan in the original Adam and Eve sin, when God cursed Satan, he says, look, I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to animosity, I'm going to make enemies of you and, and human beings. 
But there's going to be a seed, a descendant, singular. A descendant is going to come from the woman. This is so cool. A descendant is going to come from the woman, and he will crush your head. But you'll strike his heel. So God has essentially told Eve from the very beginning, a hero is going to come one day who's going to undo all of this, and in the process, he's going to lose his life. And we said last week, does that sound like anybody? It sounds like Jesus to me. But all Cain knows is that a hero is going to come and undo what happened with Adam and Eve. And now Cain knows one more thing. Cain knows it's not him. Cain's not going to be the one who is going to be the hero. But you and I, you and I have the advantage of living at a point in history where we know who the hero is. The hero is Jesus. So how does Jesus undo, how does Jesus overcome Satan and satisfy God's justice and make all things right again? I don't have time to explain this fully, but let's touch on it because this is flat out awesome. So Paul explained it like this. Amazing. If you miss everything else for the last 15 years, don't miss this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul has reached a high point in one of his arguments. He's explaining this whole thing about God and his justice system. And then he says this, look, this is what God did. God made him, he's talking about Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, what God did is God took all of those terrible choices that Heidi has made and that Heidi will make and all of the terrible choices that Nate has made as a consequence of what Heidi has done. God has taken all of those choices. God has taken that battle that you and I fight and he put it on Jesus and then he poured out all of his justice on Jesus. And he killed him for us. So that we could be free. So that when AJ or Pete or Nate want to rage against their job or against a kid in their neighborhood or against their wife, all of that has taken, it's been absorbed by Jesus. And the justice and the consequences of that have been suffered by Jesus. So that God could be, Paul uses this phrase in Romans, God could be both just and the justifier. He could be the one that makes us okay, but still satisfy the universal system of justice. This is why it all starts with Jesus. Now, I know that you may be, and some of you I know that have been coming to Gateway for a while, you, you don't completely track with everything I'm talking about. You may be into spirituality. You may be into, you know, thinking and doing and being spiritual. But real spirituality begins with having our spirits awakened by an encounter with and an understanding of Jesus. You may have grown up a good Catholic or you may have been a good Baptist, or you may have discovered Buddhism a few years ago and it's been really helpful for you, or you may, uh, you may be Muslim. That's great if it helps you be a better person, but 
really, ultimately, it's all about Jesus. Because he's the only one that satisfies the battle, the sin that's crouching at our door that has consuming power. He's the only one that satisfies the consequences of that. He's the only one that sets us free from the power of that. Otherwise, if you leave him out of the equation, you're doing what Cain did. You're being spiritual, but you're being spiritual in a way that's mercenary. You're being spiritual because it makes you better. It makes, you, it makes your life better. It makes you a better person. And it helps you chill. Or it helps you get things accomplished. But you'll find out how mercenary your spiritual connection is when the dream dies or when something terrible goes terribly wrong with your design or your plan. You'll find out your whole spiritual connection was a mercenary connection. So I'll say to you what God said to Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to master you. It wants to rule you. You must instead master it. And I want to suggest you and I can't do that apart from a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Let me end with a, a couple of paragraphs of a quote from C.S. Lewis. Some of you have heard of or read C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book that kind of lays out a really good case for being a Christian. It's called Mere Christianity. He says in that book, I used to puzzle about certain Christian writers who seem so strict at one moment and so free the next. For instance, they would talk about mere sins of thought as if they were immensely important, but then they would talk about frightful murders and treacheries and say that if you repent, you can be forgiven. But I've come to see, Lewis says, they're right. What they're always thinking of is the mark which the sinful or the virtuous action leaves on the tiny central self, which no one sees, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. He goes on, look, one man may be so placed in life that his anger sheds the blood of thousands, while another person is placed so that however angry he gets, he will only be laughed at. So one person is in such an important position that when he follows the path of rage, thousands of people die. Another person, he's placed in life so that when he gets really angry, people just laugh at him. Really, it seems like no harm is done. Lewis goes on, but each has done a little mark on the soul. Each has done something to himself, which unless he repents and receives God's grace will make it harder to keep out of the rage the next time he is tempted and will make the rage worse when he does fall into it. Each of them, if he seriously turns to God, can have that twist in the central self straightened out. Each is, however, in the long run, doomed if he will not. The bigness or the smallness of the sin seen from the outside is not, in the end, what really matters. Okay, we're in a different environment. I've felt a little lost a couple of times. I can't imagine that you wouldn't have felt the same thing. But we need to pause for just one second because we've hardly, on any Sunday that we've been together, we've had Sundays where we've been more connected, but we've hardly had any Sundays ever where we've talked about something more important than this. So I don't know what God's response or what your response to what God might be saying here should be.
For some of you, you need to run, not walk, to the nearest person that you can talk to and confess to and talk about the consuming power of sin because it wants to rule you. For some of you this morning, you need to run, not walk, to the nearest person that you can get to pray for you because of the dangerous nearness of sin. You need to run. It's not an embarrassment. Look, whoever you choose to go to, they're just as goofy, and sin is just as dangerously near to them as it is to you. For some of you, you need to renew your connection to the work of Jesus Christ. Maybe you understood it a little more fully today, and you need to be all in. Maybe you've never been all in, or you certainly haven't been all in lately. And you need to renew that connection this morning. I don't know what your response needs to be, but I know that you can't walk away from the story of Cain and Abel and the principles that are in the story of Cain and Abel and be unchanged. All right. Enough of me. All God's people said, Amen. let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I know this. I know that we need you in the battle over our dysfunction, in the battle with our maladaptive behavior, in the struggle with peer pressure, but most importantly, in the war against sin. We need you. We cannot do this without you. We acknowledge this morning that sin is dangerously near and consumingly powerful. Most importantly today, Father, we thank you because the most damaging and the most ultimate consequences that we suffer as a result of our sin, the ultimate consequences that we suffer, the pronouncement that Cain came under, God, we have the opportunity to avoid that by turning to you and looking to the work of Jesus, our hero. We also know that in him, finally, we can find the power to overcome. God, I feel like we're a little disconnected this morning. God, I pray that we give you permission to allow this to uh, ruminate and for us to bake in this over time. I continue to speak to us this week, God. We give you permission to bring this up this week to make us aware of the dangerous nearness of sin and the consuming power of sin so that we can begin to learn how in your power to master it. God, I also pray this week that very real ways throughout the week, throughout the day, that we would look to Jesus our way out, our Savior, our hero. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Okay, don't go yet. Let's do one more song before we leave. I don't know why this, this hit me this morning as we were singing this song. So that first song we did, Open Up Our Eyes, some of you started to like that song. It's a killer song. Let's just do it one time through, Jordan. But uh, here's what I want you to think about when we're doing this song. There is this passage in the Old Testament. I can't remember who it is. I think it's Elijah, but it could be Elisha. I get those two confused. So we'll say it's Elijah. And they're in this space with one of their kind of apprentices. And sort of the bad king is looking for them. 
and they get surrounded by armies. And they're, the, the place is just all sides surrounded. And the apprentice prophet goes out and looks and he comes back into the place. He says, Elijah, what in the world? We're dead. We're doomed. We're dead. We're surrounded. They found us. We're, we're done for. Elijah peels back, or Elisha peels back the curtain and looks out and looks at his apprentice. He says, no, we got more than they've got. The apprentice goes, what are you, you nuts? There's like two of us. And he prays, open up his eyes. And he looks and he sees a heavenly force that's far more numerous than the forces of the enemy. And they prevail. All right, so look, our lives are bleak. We are like in a constant battle with an enemy that is dangerously near, like inside us. And that enemy has consuming power. It wants to master you. Here's the good news that you and I can leave with today. Greater is the ones with us. The essential self us. Greater is the one that's with us than the one that surrounds us. So I want you to think about that image as we close with this song. Let's do it one time for Jordan.
together. Thank you very much. Um, the second. Yeah, story for it. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Dad. How are you? All right, yeah? Good.